to say, take a seat. And I opened my eyes, and everyone was sitting. It was incredible. <laughs> uh, I hope you're doing all right. It's, uh, it's good to see you. It's good to see some new faces and um, lots of faces I've not seen uh, in a while. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Lewis, and uh, yeah, it's great to um, see you today. I hope you're enjoying uh, the kind of slight easing of restrictions in Glasgow uh, this weekend. And um, yeah, I was saying to my wife, like, a really sunny weekend. It's just a rubbish weekend for all the, like, fun indoor stuff to open. It's just not great. Wish it had happened two weeks ago. But um, speaking of restrictions, don't shout out your opinion. But I am sure that we have all been questioning the abilities, the judgments, the decision-making of our leaders. What's your opinion? Don't answer on the COVID lockdowns. How well was Brexit managed? Don't answer. Why do so many of the people who are in leadership above us fall and fail, seemingly totally disregarding practicing what they preach? The last 18 months have made us painfully aware of the shortcomings of our leaders, maybe aware of the things they do well, but Wherever you stand, the last year or so has made us aware of our leaders, of how it matters how they lead. And actually, as we continue in the book of 1 Samuel, we find some people asking similar questions that we've been asking. Is this the right person for the job? In 1 Samuel 10, we left off last week with this group of people saying, how can this man even save us? God had led Samuel to choose Saul, this uh, farmer from the tribe of Benjamin, to choose him to be king over Israel. And uh, we left off with huge swathes of people saying, how can this man, this farmer, how can he even save us? In other words, is this even the right man for the job? So our uncertainty about leadership isn't new, but it's also not just political. I wonder if you've ever asked that question about Jesus. Maybe you sometimes come to church and you sit and you listen, but you can't help but think, is this guy, is this Jesus really who we are making him out to be? Maybe you're painfully aware of the brokenness all around you, and you're not entirely convinced that he is the one to look to for the answers. Is Jesus the right man for the job? Can Jesus even save us? Well, this afternoon, as we pick up in our story, we're going to look at how King Saul, on his first week of being king, has this challenge, this crisis come at him, and how he answers the people's questions about his ability to save them. And I hope that as we read through, we'll see something of how Jesus also answers our doubts about his ability to save us today. With a crisis coming, how will Saul respond? In the midst of the mess of our world, can we trust Jesus to respond? If you have a Bible, why don't you grab it? We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 11, and it will just read uh, kind of short sections as we go. So, starting in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 11. 
It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you that I can gouge out all of your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if no one comes to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. It's weird. It's weird. What we're reading about is this small kind of settlement on the very eastern edge of Saul's kingdom. Jabesh Gilead is far from Jerusalem. It's far from the people that call the shots, and it is pretty vulnerable to attack from an army like the Ammonites. In many ways, Jabesh Gilead, this little town, is a backwater town full of inconsequential people. It's a bit like Edinburgh, a small rubbish city on the eastern edge of a great kingdom. <laughs> and it's an easy target for the Ammonites. They are a, a kind of tribal people that live around the edge of Israel, and they lead this huge army led by a cruel king called Nahash. And they've arrived on Jabesh Gilead's doorstep with the intent of conquering them. And that's all fine. But there's more going on here than just a kind of dramatic war scene 3,000 years ago. If you're a history buff, that might be enough. Enough, enough. But the Bible has a grander story to tell. It's not just this, this thing happened. See, Nahash, as in Nahash of the Ammonites, the cruel leader. Nahash is a Hebrew word which means serpent. So if you were to read this, Verse 1, in the original, original Hebrew, you would read this. The Ammonite serpent went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. So there's echoes of the first story in the Bible, the Garden of Eden. And those echoes come in the worst way possible. Just like in the garden, a serpent slithers up to God's people with the intent of robbing him of glory and leading his people into slavery. That isn't just a kind of literary cool fact. It is the reality of what it meant to be an Israelite. See, God's people have been called apart, the Bible says, from the nations around them. They've been called, in the words of the Mosaic law, to be holy as their father was holy. And as part of their being God's people, they were called to keep the serpent who carries sin and death and hell in his toe, out of God's land. Just like Eden, uh, Adam in the Garden of Eden was to protect and then expand the boundaries of the garden. Now Israel is called to protect and expand the boundary of God's kingdom on earth. So here's the tension that is being set up here. Satan's nation is on the doorstep. Will God's kingdom be corrupted, or will the snake be banished? The residents 
of uh, Jabesh Gilead. I'm going to say Gilead from now on. I'm tripping on it. The residents of Gilead, they start by bargaining with Nahash. Verse 1, make a treaty with us and we'll be subject to you. Now, I can understand the logic here. If somebody rocks up on my doorstep, threatens to burn down my house and kill everyone I love, I'm going to try and strike a bargain. And maybe actually as Nahash responds, they start to feel positive. Verse 2, I will make a treaty with you. They're maybe thinking, good, maybe we can get away scot-free here. But Nahash continues, only on the condition I can gouge out all of your right eyes. The echoes of Eden intensify, the stakes double. When Eve in the garden bargained with the snake, she found herself cut off from God. When these villagers bargain with Nahash, they almost have their eyes cut out. Whenever we try and cut a deal with the devil, it is always us that gets cut. See, Nahash wants to own these people. He wants to leave them with enough eyesight that they can farm and work and kind of generate taxes for him. But with one eye, they don't have enough hand-eye coordination to fight back. Gouging out their eyes would not just be a kind of, we've won today, but it would leave them for the rest of their lives in total bondage to him. And sin does the same thing. Sin is like an addiction. We sin to cover up sin. We numb ourselves to the guilt of the way that we are living. There's a famous line, and it is true. Sin leads us to stray further than we meant to stray. It leads us to stay longer than we meant to stay. And it makes us pay more than we meant to pay. Sin enslaves. I'm sure that you can look back at your own life and agree that sin has been like a slave master over you. I, I can. I can. If it's addiction, gossip, sexual sin, apathy, whatever it has been for you, sin gives birth to sin, and before we know it, we're caught in its web, and we don't know how to get out. Like a man with one eye, find that we can do nothing but keep living a life of giving in to sin. Let me clarify, if you are a follower of Jesus here today, you are not a slave to sin anymore. That is good news. We praise God for that. In the same way that God brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into a good land, a good land filled with his presence. We have been brought out of slavery to sin and into his church, into his new temple. And yet sin, in the words of God in Genesis 4, crouches at the door. Crouches at the door. We're not slaves anymore. But the Bible isn't shy about the reality of our enemy. Here's what the uh, apostle Peter said to one of the earliest churches. He said that the devil prowls around 
like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, looking for someone to drag down with him into the darkness. And Nahash, the serpent king, is prowling around. His desire is to devour God's people, to drag them down into his darkness. If he has his way, they will be blinded and enslaved again. And uh, I can only imagine that they are so scared when he makes this threat. They probably realize at that moment what has always been true, the enemy is too strong. The serpent never gives an inch. And so they go for the Hail Mary. Verse 3, give us seven days. Give us seven days, and if nobody comes, we will surrender. The Jabeshites realize something that is still true today. The only suitable response when sin and Satan are slithering up to your door is to call on the name of God's King. You see this all through the Bible. Just like a child has this innate reflex to cry for their mum or dad for help, a Christian develops a reflex of crying out in faith. When death or temptation stands at the door, we can't help but call on God. Let me read Psalm 27 to you and notice the parallels between this and our story. This is verse 2. Psalm 27, when the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war breaks out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this alone do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. And then the final verse, 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. For the psalmist, the healing balm to his impending dread and terror is the presence of God. The spiritual reflex of his heart is to seek God's face, to call on God, come and be near to me, save me. Like when the horrors of this world inevitably cloak themselves around you, when depression or sickness or fear, when sin or loneliness Grab us by the throat when doubt feels like it is so close. That is the moment that we can't give in. We can't lose hope. In that moment, we have to seek God's face. In that moment, we have to come to Jesus. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And that's just what these villagers do. They call on Saul, the newly crowned king of God's kingdom. And our question at the start, can this man even save us, suddenly has real stakes. 
when we're surrounded by an oppressive army, can this man save us? As the serpent slithers to Israel's door, will Saul crush his head? Let's keep reading, and then we'll find out. Verse 5 in 1 Samuel 11. Now behold, Samuel was coming from the field behind the oxen, and so Saul was coming. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them through all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you can do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Well, when I was in uh, primary six, I was uh, I was at a friend's house, and um, we decided uh, to go uh, a walk round to play tennis, and um, came up his steps, and uh, his kind of house. You had to cross a road at the top of a hill to uh, to get uh, to the tennis club. And uh, not paying attention, I just ran into the road. And uh, as I'm about halfway over the, the road, a car barrels over the top of the hill. And uh, I turned and left my foot in the lane and a car right over my foot. And um, I just remember sitting there screaming, crying. And uh, my friend's mum phoned my house and classic my mum was out getting ice cream uh, but my dad was home which is like not as good is it you want your mum but um, my friend's mum just panicked and she goes on the phone and she's like Lewis has been hit by a car and just hung up and uh, my dad sprinted around the corner and uh, ran into my friend's house and uh, the woman that had run me over was uh, at the front door and she recognized him and uh, be kind to her she was probably in shock but she was like, oh, hey, Scott, like, it's been so long. How are you? Like, I've not seen you in so blah, blah, blah. And uh, my dad laughed about it later because he genuinely thinks his son might have been hit by a car, not just his foot ran over. And uh, here's this woman trying to make small talk in the doorway of my friend's house. He barged through, and uh, he comes to help me. Nothing in that moment matters more to my dad than protecting me. Nothing standing in his way. He is coming to help. Notice that when the Spirit rushes onto Saul in our passage, nothing will get in his way. He leaves everything behind to rescue his people. Saul the farmer in a moment becomes Saul the commander. He sacrifices his cows to rouse his troops. Nothing 
or get in the way of his rescue mission. God of angel armies puts his spirit in a king who calls an army to set the captives free. This is even more remarkable when we consider that Jabesh Gilead is not a well-loved group of people. If you were to read Judges 19, uh, you would find a story, it's a, it's a grisly story, where um, a man has a concubine and she is murdered and raped, and he calls for all the tribes of Israel uh, to come and bring justice upon the men that did this to her. And uh, they all came other than Jabesh Gilead, this, this small town didn't come to bring justice to these people. And so we can imagine that Saul would just say, well, you know, they're all the way out there. They don't really deserve our help. Jabesh Gilead are like a wayward son, undeserving of love, and yet somehow loved and protected anyway. I'm reminded of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, where a, a son takes his dad's money and runs off to sleep around and have fun and comes back later with no money, filthy and broken, and he expects to come to his dad's house and find him fuming. Instead, he finds his dad sprinting down the driveway to meet him halfway and hold him in his arms. Do you know today, do you really know that God's heart for you is always to hold you in his embrace? If you've failed like this town, if you've called on God for help, but don't really know if it's coming, maybe you're putting off calling on Jesus because you don't really know that he'll accept you. If that's you, hear these words. These are the words of a Puritan Christian from a few centuries ago. He says this, the thing that keeps men off of coming to Jesus is that they know not Christ's heart. The truth is he is more glad of us than we can be of him. He that came down from heaven to die for you will meet you more than halfway, as the prodigal's father is said to do. Oh, therefore, come in unto him. If you knew his heart, you would. If you knew his heart, you would. If you have ever wondered how God will respond when you call, then know this. Jesus Christ, King of kings, God from all eternity, left his throne, set aside his crown, crossed eternity and entered the fray for you. Can this man save us? We'll get there soon. Does he want to save us? Yes, yes, and never doubt it. When Saul heard his people cry, he put on armor and entered into the battlefield. When Jesus heard our cry, he put on flesh and entered into humanity. Let's keep going. When, uh, when the villagers catch wind that Saul is coming, that Saul is on the move, they, they tell the Ammonite army that nobody is coming, and uh, they'll surrender first thing in the morning. And uh, we can imagine that the army take that as an opportunity to 
get merry and drink and, and gloat in their victory that's coming. And uh, the Ammonites think they've won. They think nobody is coming. They probably just fall asleep, ready to start eye gouging in the morning. I shouldn't have done that. That was, sorry. <laughs> Make it more graphic than it is. <laughs> I should have brought a spoon as a prop. <laughs> Saul and his army, though, they ride in during the fourth watch of the night. That's like three in the morning, just before dawn, and they annihilate them. Saul and his army come out of nowhere. The snake and his army are defeated, caught by surprise in the middle of the night. Like this village, we are in many ways in the middle of the night. We are caught between two victories. We've heard whispers, Jesus is victorious and he is on the move. And yet here we are, surrounded by darkness, waiting for him to show up again to finish the job. We live in the space in between the already not yet, the, the, the era where it feels like darkness might actually just win. And yet we know that Jesus is on his way, coming back who knows when in the middle of the night to rescue us. Here's what the book of Hebrews says about Jesus and his coming again. It says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Listen, Saul is passing the test with flying colors so far. People call, he comes. But at his best, and this really is his best, he only points to Jesus, the one who is really anointed with the Spirit, the Messiah, the one who left heaven for you and sometime soon will leave heaven again, but this time with an army of angels at his back, with a sword in his hand to set his people free from sin and suffering. King is on his way like Saul, but greater. Jesus will so thoroughly defeat his enemies. The Bible says they will become stool for his feet. So the Bible says that Jesus will kick back and rest his feet on death. He has the victory over sin, over Satan, over hell, over death, and on the last day he will return and destroy them once and for all. Just like in our story, when the sun rises on the day of God's judgment, Jesus will be seen standing victorious over his enemies with the head of the serpent under his shoe. The day is coming when the rain will stop and the clouds will part and the light of God in Jesus will burst into our world. On that day, nobody no exceptions. Nobody who stood against him in this life will stand. And on that day, God's people will be free at last. 
Jesus is the all-conquering, crucified, carpenter king. Can he save us? Here's what Hebrews 7.25 says. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Know this. On the day that he shows up, if you know Jesus, pain will be healed. Justice will be done. Death will be dead. When Christ returns and the enemy is defeated and the dead are raised, there will be nothing left to do but to fall in grateful allegiance at the feet of this king. Let's keep reading from verse 12, and we'll see the crowning of the conquering king. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The beginning of our story, we had crowds of people saying, this guy, he's just a farmer. He can't even save us. Even worse, we had an army on the doorstep of God's kingdom trying to end Saul's reign before it even begins. Our story started with a snake attacking God's people, and it ends with God's king crowned as God's people feast in God's presence. At the moment of victory, every knee in Israel bows before the king, and Saul crowns him again. There's a feast with celebrating and singing and good food. God has been good to them. And in many ways, that is a snapshot of the story of the whole Bible. We begin with a snake tempting and misleading God's people. And via a series of calling on God's name, via an up and down history of faith and faithlessness, trust and doubt, victory and defeat, we find ourselves on the last page of the Bible, in the city of God at a remarkable feast as King Jesus is crowned, and the serpent is nowhere to be seen. In J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, The Two Towers, uh, one of the characters says this. He says, war must be. It must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. The war is one thing. What comes on the other side? It is easy to talk about what we are saved from. Sin and death are beaten, praise God. But now what? When Jesus returns and puts all things to right and saves us, what are we saved for? What are we saved into? Well, the Bible says that we are saved for joy in God's presence. 
in the words of the Westminster Catechism, the end goal of everything is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. After the war, when injustice and sin and death and hell are put to the sword, there will be a feast. And every knee will bow and every tongue will sing and shout of God's goodness. In the words of C.S. Lewis, joy will prevail and all the makers of misery will never infect it. Joy triumphs over misery. Hope wins against despair. Goodness beats evil. Jesus crushes the serpent's head. Abby and I love a good, uh, a good thriller movie in our house. And uh, you can't beat a thriller with an incredible twist at the end. Uh, but almost as good as rewinding and watching the whole thing again, knowing what twist is coming. Everything starts falling into place. When you know how the story ends, everything makes sense. We know how this story ends. When the dazzling light of Jesus appears, all of the shadows that sin casts will disappear. Only joy and love will remain. This story ends around a table of worship in the presence of God. It ends with King Jesus crowned and ruling the world for his love and goodness. Can this man save us? Is Jesus really who he makes himself out to be? Today we see a whispered, hazy yes. But on the day that you see his glory, nobody will doubt anymore. Nobody will fail to see who he really is, the king who came to find you, the king who rescued you, the king who invites you into his kingdom of joyful love. Today will you crown him king of kings. Father, we praise you for your victorious, conquering, crucified king. God, we thank you that there is a day coming where the clouds will part and light will fill our world and King Jesus will appear. Thank you that there is a day on the horizon when sin and death and hell are put to the sword and only goodness will remain. Lord, we cannot wait for that day. While we wait, God, help us to cry out in faith. Help us not to strike a deal, to try and muddle through, Lord. All we want to do in this world is seek your presence. God, we just pray together the words of Psalm 27. One thing have I asked, that I may seek your face, that I might meditate on your presence. God, we thank you that that is available to us in part today, but in the fullness of time, the fullness of your presence will be ours. 
you come soon, Lord Jesus? Would you return and set your people free? We thank you that you are on the move. We love you. We praise you. Would you receive our adoration and our worship now?